Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Noel Rabini joins us now from New York University Stern School of Business and, of course, of great acclaim at looking at crises. Professor Rabini, wonderful to have you back with us. You wrote in February or January of the white swans that are out there stealing that phrase from Nassim Taleb as well. Where are the white swans of two years from now? Well, there are some uh, medium-term challenges that we're facing. We're in a world in which... Uh, public and private debts are rising and they're going to become even bigger given the response to the crisis. Uh, we have the risk of uh, global pandemics becoming recurrent, uh, global climate change, uh, this cold war between U.S. and China is getting worse, uh, geopolitical risks are rising, there are serious political uncertainties about the U.S. election, about the shape of the recovery, uh, started like a free fall, then for a while people thought it would be a V. This V is becoming a U. The U could become a W if we don't find the vaccine, if we don't well, have enough. But Noriel, I, I want to look forward, given yeah. the assumptions and certitudes that institutions have right now. The great model, Noriel, that we have is there's a bridge out there and we should invest or act according to that bridge. Do you believe in the bridge and can it get us to 2022? I worry because uh, before the crisis, there was a massive leveraging of the corporate sector in the United States, but also in many other parts of the world, including emerging markets. And given the COVID shock, most firms have to deleverage. Deleverage means to spend less, save more, and doing less capex because there is a glut of capacity. Now, how you spend less, uh, your main costs are labor costs. But your labor costs are my labor income. So the deleveraging of the corporate sector implies there will be much more sluggish labor income. First, the workers are fired. And if and when they're going to start to be hired, they're not going to get full-time jobs with full wages and benefits. It will be more gig workers, part-time workers, hourly workers, contractors, freelancers. That means a huge amount of uncertainty and risk aversion by the household sector that is also highly indebted. So you're going to have also deleveraging by the household sector that they have to spend less, mm -hmm. save more, and do less residential investment. And that deleveraging of the private sector implies at best a sluggish U-shaped recovery. And at worst, if we're not doing the right things in terms of controlling the virus and we don't find the vaccine, that you could become even a W, a double deep recession. But Noriel, if you look at the markets, they're going up. So, you know, you've, you've basically, uh, you're saying that we're going through 10 years of misery. Uh, the market keeps on going up because of central banks. So, you know, who's right? Does the economy catch up with the market or is the, does the market catch up with the economy? Well, as you pointed out, you know, we have a zero policy rate, if not negative. We have long-term interest rates in the U.S. at best uh, at 60 basis points in parts of the world, zero if not negative. Central banks are even buying high yield and high grade bonds, so those spreads are squeezed and you don't get much in uh, credit or fixed income. And therefore, people are going into stocks, but not because there is a very strong recovery of earnings, 
I mean, you have, yeah, five companies, the big tech within the 500 of S&P that are doing well. The rest of them are not doing well. So it's all driven by further multiple expansion rather than a real recovery. And what's good, by the way, for Wall Street is bad for Main Street because Wall Street represents what? Big firms, big tech, and big banks. What's Main Street? Workers, households, and small and medium-sized enterprises. We know that hundreds of thousands, soon enough, of small shops, retailers, and others are going to go out of business while the market share of big business is going to rise, and that's driving Main Street down that creates tons of jobs in the SME and makes the big firms even bigger in terms of market shares. And as I said, if the firms are going to survive and thrive and achieve the earnings target by slashing labor costs, right. your labor costs are my labor income, my consumption, and eventually that slump of consumption is going to weaken earnings and profits down the line. So okay. I think that but the Nouria, stock market doesn't reflect the real economy. Mainstream is struggling. It's okay. struggling severely. D we're also focusing a lot more on health. We're also focusing a lot more on, on climate change. Governments yeah. are doing that across the world. Does it mean that the pandemic is actually ending our obsession with economic growth to focus on other things? Well, it might in the short run, but now there is some clear evidence that uh, these uh, zoonotic diseases that are transmission from animal to human that are occurring much more frequently. We have HIV, SARS, MERS, swine flu, bird flu, Zika, Ebola, now COVID-19, soon enough there might be even more virulent, is driven by the destruction of ecosystem that imply that animals that are wild, that carry these diseases, are closer to livestock and closer to human. So if we don't address the destruction of the ecosystem, the global <clears throat> pandemics are going to become more frequent and more severe. And this pandemic alone has done more economic destruction than any economic and financial crisis in the last no. uh, 70 years. So no, thinking that we should not worry about the environment doesn't make any sense. No, Actually, we have to invest into environment control because that's right. going to be creating jobs. Nora Rabini, I want you to take an old world study of how America's struggling to do income replacement. It's understood in Germany, it's understood in the continent, it's understood in the United Kingdom, and America is struggling so hard with aid, with stimulus, and with the idea simply of replacing income. Why is that? Well, historically, people were criticizing the European labor markets for being uh, more rigid and not as flexible as the U.S., but during this crisis, the European system seems to have worked much better because instead of indiscriminately firing people, there is a system where workers stay on the job. They get at least 60 to 70% of their income, depending on the country, and the rest of it is risk sharing between the firm and the government. That's why the unemployment rate barely went up in Germany or even in Italy, while in the US we have had a double digit unemployment rate and actually even worse considering underemployment and so on. So I think that actually a system where there is more social cohesion implies that you don't have the collapse of employment, the collapse of labor income, and that's why the recovery of Europe and the Eurozone right now 
may be better than the one of the United States. Of course, there is a dual labor market. There are people that are informal workers who don't get the same kind of benefits. And there is a risk that, of course, if the recovery is going to be anemic in Europe with another wave, that there'll be another wave of unemployment. That's a serious risk, but that more rigid labor market and this form of resharing has implied actually that during a major crisis like this, the European system of greater social cohesion gives you better economic outcomes than the one of the United States that is just Wild West capitalism. Noriel, does that mean that MMT will be here? And again, what does that mean for, you know, for assets? Well, we are already effectively in MMT or helicopter drop of money because we have massive budget deficits of the order of 10% in Europe. In the U.S. is going to be closer to 20%. And we have central banks that are effectively doing unlimited QE. Formally, in the case of the U.S. or Japan, informally, even in the Eurozone and other parts of Europe. So what's the difference between MMT and large monetized budget deficits, uh, only two fig leaves. Uh, in one case, you buy the bonds uh, in the primary market if you do MMT. In the other case, if you do well, QE, you buy it in the secondary a week later. Two, MMT is supposed to be permanent, while QE is supposed to be temporary. But uh, this temporary QE is becoming good. permanent. Noro, so effectively, we are in that world of MMT. We are out of time. Noro Bini, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you again. The real yield has become very serious, and that's a good way to bring in our first guest. This is perfect uh, for the morning on equities. John Golub joins from Credit Suisse. John, I want to go right over to James Sweeney and the rest of your fixed income team and economics team. What is the real yield? <coughs> excuse me. What does the, the large negative real yield mean for equity investors? Um, you know, it's it's interesting, Tom. We've we've done a whole bunch of work on what it means for stock prices because I know that people who are looking at gold and other assets are yeah. really obsessed with this. It it the the market cares more about nominal interest rates than real yield. They do care about this this issue of inflation. And we are when we're talking to clients, whether we have inflation or deflation on the back of this crisis is a really big discussion point because it sets the tone for what type of stocks are going to win. But the but in terms of the direction of the market, it's the general level, it's the 63 basis points on the 10-year that matters more to stocks than this negative 1% okay. you're talking about well, on the real yield. Right there is worth the watching of Bloomberg surveillance through all of this surveillance thon right there. It's the nominal yield minus inflation expectations, and the residual of that is the real yield. And what you're hearing from Golub is look at the nominal yield uh, is, is the most important determinant. What does it mean, John Gallup, for the big banks and for banking in general? Well, you know, and banks don't do well when there's no interest rates. And at 63 basis points on the 10-year, and you can pull up on your Bloomberg on what a two-year um, bond yield is, is doing, which is, is a lot lower than that, and banks can't be that profitable in that. Um, reasons why the U.S. banks have done so poor and actually worse than European banks is because the yields in the United States have fallen meaningfully, but European <coughs> yields were so low going into this crisis they couldn't go any lower. 
Um, so the, the damage to U.S. banks has been much greater on a relative basis than the, bank, than the damage to European banks, um, you know, as a result of this crisis, which is really, I think, a surprise to many. Uh, John Gallup, something current this morning. An hour ago, we saw John Deere come out with a better uh, view for their Q3, certainly a surprise uh, to the market. Is that a trend that we're going to see coming here and that with the grimness and the gloom of a pandemic markdown, actually companies could do better? You know, we, we saw in the second quarter that it was the best quarter in history in terms of, of beats, how results were coming in relative to expectations. And it was also the, the single quarter where the market cared less than any other. Um, the, what people are trying to figure out is where is this thing going and what happens to Q3 earnings in the middle of this is probably more noise. People are really trying to figure out the, the kind of the trend direction do we have a cure? What does it do for rates? What does it do for inflation? As you were talking about, which is really the key issue. Um, but, as, but the next quarter in terms of earnings, the market really is actually shrugging its shoulders much more than you would think. Okay, so Jonathan, let's go back to, and good morning from London, it's Francine, but let's go back to this inflation versus deflation. If we were yep. to see inflation, let's say rampant inflation, where does it come from? Is it central bank action? Is it stimulus? Or actually, is it simply supply chains? If you move supply chains and you move them back home, <clears throat> you know, partly because of trade wars, but also because of COVID, does it just mean that prices go automatically up? Well, it, it's a really great question because recently we've had a pickup in actual inflation. And you're starting to see if you wanted to go buy a bicycle or a tennis racket or, or certain things like that, that there may be shortages because everything has been shut down and then reopened and you're seeing inflation. Right now, for people who want to leave New York City and buy an apartment, an apartment, but uh, uh, rent a home in the suburbs, that the prices are up because there's no additional stock of, of homes to buy or rent. And so you are seeing inflation now, but it is not the kind that's going to freak the market out because this is really transitory. It's because of um, kind of the result of the, uh, the crisis itself. The real, the real question, I think, in terms of longer-term inflation, and that's really what, what matters here, is um, are you going to see this as a systemic issue because the Fed is printing money and that it's ultimately going to be a monetary phenomenon that prices go up broadly on a sustained <clears throat> basis? If that happens, then it's going to affect asset prices. If it's something that's a near-term shortage, for example, the price of, of, of lumber is, is up, but that's not something that's a long-term trend that's, a, that's really resulting from the current crisis, that's not the thing that's, that's going to make the market uncomfortable. Um, but the real question, if you have central banks everywhere yeah. in the world printing money like crazy, then prices naturally go up, and that's the thing that people are focused on. But with a labor market that is, uh, you know, with 15 million unemployed Americans, it's very hard to see right now anything that looks like underlying inflation. Jonathan, you know, there are two things that I learned in lockdown, and that was actually, yes, bicycles saw a sharp rise in inflation, and there was also a puppy shortage. I don't know whether you can model that. I mean, Tom can actually, see, you know, see a three standard deviation in prices of puppies. How do you protect yourself? Do you buy inflation protection? at this moment in time. I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, you, you, were, you were talking about what matters. If you in the inflation deflation argument, and I talk to Andrew Garthwaite, who's our global strategist, about this all the time. 
if you are if you think that you're going to have a long-term inflation problem because of all this money printing, then value beats growth and non-US assets actually beat US assets. If you think that we're going to have disinflation, and that's my view, that ultimately all of the damage that's being done here actually pushes inflation down. Um, but if that's the case, then growth wins and right. tech wins and large caps. So this, this discussion is not just an academic um, issue. It is the single most important issue for pension plans and hedge funds and mutual right. fund managers who want to figure out how do you play this thing not over the next week, but over the next, you know, one, two, three years. John Golub, one final question. I was thunderstruck at a cautious James Sweeney the last time your wonderful chief economist was on with us. I'd never heard Sweeney so cautious, and that's confirmed today by the statistics out of France as well. Are you investing based on Sweeney's caution? First of all, we talk all you know. We talk all the time, and um, you know, and we don't. People don't always agree on everything. Right now, we're seeing the world the same way. That the bounce that we've had, this V-shaped bounce off the bottom, is going to start flattening out as we go into <clears throat> the September October time frame. And so, we believe you're going to see more data start to roll over. And we saw that, for example, with the jobs data um, yesterday on the unemployment claims, it, it has really stopped going down. And it, it's the, the improvement in the job situation has kind of flattened out. And we think we're going to see that. And James is a big proponent of the idea of industrial production, that the industrial data, which bounced really hard, big V off the bottom, that it's going to stop improving um, on a relative change basis. Mm. And so he would he would agree. He would actually, uh, I haven't spoken to him, he'd probably look at the state out of France and say, directionally, that's not a big surprise. John Gobb, thank you for the briefing with Credit Suisse. Just wonderful to see that combined research of Mr. Graithright, Mr. Sweeney, and Mr. Agalab. We go to Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab. Uh, her, her experience at Schwab is extraordinary. And Lizanne, I want to go back to the moments like with Lou Rukeyser a few years ago where there were big events. We're now into not a big event, but almost a weekly and indeed monthly numbness of struggling news. How do you invest given a numbness? Yeah, I, it is an extraordinary period of time. And I, I really think, and I would say this, I suppose, in a normal market environment, but investors have to remember that some of the basics around uh, rebalancing, broad diversification, I think, really come into play in this environment. I, I continually get questions about whether to be in this market, be it given high valuations or election uncertainty, should I get out now? And either get in or get out. Uh, and I think that's sort of the moxie of, of some of the newly minted day traders uh, is a long-term investing strategy. And I think in this environment, more frequent rebalancing driven by volatility and what asset classes are doing, letting your portfolio tell you when it's time to do something keeps us in gear by sort of forcing mm -hmm. us to trim into strength and add into weakness, which is ultimately the, the, the best path to long-term success. Some of your research, Lizanne, is about volume, about retail trades, about the confidences that are out there. Measure for us a pile of money on the sidelines. How big is the mountain of cash? 
Well, it really depends on what type of investor you're looking at, and that's really extraordinary. If you look at the most active investors, their equity exposure has gone well up, so there's not a lot of cash there. If you look at uh, more traditional investors, and there was a recent Gallup poll, you can look at overall household exposure to equities. That's been coming down. So that's another unique part of this market environment is you really have significant divergence in terms of both behavioral and attitudinal measures of investor sentiment and what their positioning is. So if you look at the cohort of newer, younger, more active day traders, uh, their exposure is extraordinarily high. But if you look at more seasoned investors, both on the retail side and the institutional side, they've had a bit more skepticism about this and are holding uh, larger amounts of, of cash. So it really is a unique environment where you have to break investors into various cohorts, in some cases, a function of age, um, to get a sense of where there's excess and where there's still opportunity. But, uh, Lizanne, where do, you know, is volatility more volatility a given? Because just simply the number of infections are rising because of COVID-19 and it will be much more difficult to read the economy. I think economic volatility is absolutely a given. We've seen diminishing equity volatility as measured by things like the VIX. But I think as we move into the fall, that's likely to pick up. Even absent any news on the virus front, I think election-related volatility tends to pick up in the post-Labor Day environment. So I would certainly expect that to be the case this time. But I think economic volatility, absolutely, not just driven by number of cases. And there's been a big focus on, on vaccines, and I think the market would obviously be pleasantly surprised if we do get near-term news on a vaccine. But I think just as important would be news on therapeutics, because we have to remember that upon an announcement of a vaccine that's ready for humans, there'll be all the follow-on questions on efficacy, availability, the percentage of people willing to take it. So I, I don't think uh, the headline we're looking for on a vaccine answers all the questions that we uh, have now or will then. Lizanne, should we spend a lot more time trying to figure out, you know, what companies will go into liquidation, will go bankrupt? And, and well, is this because of COVID-19 or is it just an acceleration of trend? Well, we're seeing a heightened uh, level of bankruptcies akin to what we saw back in 2009. But we also have Fed facilities that have been able to sort of stem that tide a little bit. I still think it's a factor, particularly when we look at the relationship between temporary unemployed and permanent job losses. And those have been going effectively in the wrong direction. We've seen a decline in temporary layoffs and a rise in, in permanent job losses. And I think that will continue to be tied to bankruptcies filings. Now, for now, defaults have been held at bay in large part due to what the Fed has done. But I also yeah. think that there might be less willingness on the part of some small companies that are facing an existential threat to their business to try to stay afloat via what the Fed has done or other means. Mm. So that may be what's different in this environment versus last time. If you really question your long-term survivability, uh, I think there are some companies that are just throwing in the towel right now. On Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television, a simulcast. Francine LaCroix and Felisa Bramowitz and John Farrell, we welcome all of you on this Friday. Lizanne, I didn't know this was going to be a theme of the week on a Monday, but here it is, and that is diversification or Peter Lynch's diversification, whatever it may be. Are we over-diversified in our retirement plans? Uh, actually, we, we think not. Uh, in fact, if we look at the lack of rebalancing that's done, particularly U.S. versus uh, rest of world, 
there is a significant bias within portfolios toward U.S. equity exposure, largely because the lack of rebalancing and the outperformance. And I think, you know, what tends to happen as you move from one cycle into another cycle, you do see tend to see a reversal in leadership. And we do think there is an opportunity for non-U.S. to provide some <clears throat> diversification, which hasn't been the case in the last well, few years. But let me interrupt, Liz, but this is really important. Are you talking about European multinationals, Swiss, Nestle's, et cetera, Siemens? Oh, well, I'm are not you... talking about individual names or individual companies. No, I understand, but are you not... talking big cap or are you talking EM? Uh, talking just developed international markets, emerging markets within portfolios at the broad asset class level, uh, not specific to any country. Uh, I do still think large caps, uh, both <clears throat> in the United States and globally, um, will be mm-hmm. in the leadership uh, position. I think the the fundamental differential from a percentage of zombie companies, debt to equity ratios, all the quality factors that have been dominant in performance across asset classes, U.S. and globally across uh, sectors. <clears throat> I think that quality uh, bias in factors will define leadership more than things right. like sectors or even countries. Lizanne, in the time that we've got left to you with your public service in the Bush administration on fiscal policy as well, how troubled should our listeners and viewers be over the size of these deficits, the rapidity of which we've seen these trillion-dollar deficits? I think we should be troubled long-term. We're all MMTers now. I think if there's one area for bi- of bipartisan support, it's for kicking the uh, the deficit and debt can down uh, the road, and there doesn't seem to be much concern about this. Now, I don't view this as an as a debt bubble bursting accident uh, at a moment in time. I view this as a simmering <clears throat> crisis over time, because what's been shown, not just here in the United States, but anywhere around the globe, a high and rising burden of debt, even if it doesn't cause an, a, a moment in time crisis, it's an impediment to an economy being able to grow at a robust pace. You know, we all celebrated the longest economic expansion in mm-hmm. history, the most recent one, but it was also by far the weakest. And I think one of the reasons for that is the high debt burden. And interest costs are swamping everything else the government spends money on. And even in a no-rise interest rate environment, just increasing the debt at the pace we are means that interest payments, even in a flat yield environment, start to really swamp spending on anything else. So uh, I think it is absolutely a long-term problem, and I think the effect of it is a slower pace of growth than would otherwise be possible. Lizanne Saunders, thank you so much. Very valuable conversation this morning with Charles Schwab, of course. With us now, Gene Munster, and all I can say is years ago, you would attempt to steal Piper Jaffrey research because there was this crazy <laughs> guy at Piper Jaffrey within all the trials and tribulations of Apple, 2007 to 2008, from 28 down to $12 per share. Munster, uh, Paul, started picking up Apple. It ballooned. It went from $1.53 a share to $4.60 in 2004. Yep. And then it's done better than that recently. Think 39% per year up to the lofty $2 trillion level we're at now. We're honored to have Gene Munster with us. Gene, how do you buy and hold something like that? Tom, I think it's about knowing where the world is going. And ultimately, this exceeded our wildest dreams when we just step back and think about it over the context that we've covered it. But in a two- to five-year window, it has not 
exceeded it actually has been more predictable than would seem at first glance. And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves the question is, where is the world going? And in each of Apple's chapters, uh, they have been in front, never first, but always in yeah. front with the best products around where these themes are. And well, I think that uh, that ultimately is the question to ask about Apple is, are they going to be positioned for what people want next? They were positioned on Madison Avenue yesterday, folks. Good morning to three guys and all the great people up there helping me with breakfast after this soiree at Bloomberg. <laughs> and I wandered down, Gene, the empty stores, the empty, I mean, empty, I mean, stores in business that are empty, stores that are closed and empty. And there's a line out the Apple door. I mean, and trust me, folks, it's the only store with a line out the door. Gene Munster, how do they get to $3 trillion? How does Tim Cook continue this success? It's about tapping into those next uh, massive themes, you know, where we're going. This pandemic has created a fracture. It is, is kind of the next wave here. But to answer your question, there's three uh, phases to it. The first is 5G. 5G is going to be more significant than what people realize. It's going to be a multi-year upgrade cycle for iPhones. Typically, we see a one-year upgrade cycle, but this is going to probably be a three-year upgrade cycle. So that means you're going to have kind of uh, high single-digit, low-teen growth of iPhone that's much higher than it's been flattish over the last couple of years over the next few years because of 5G. That's one way that it gets to that, that uh, $3 trillion mark. A second is what they're doing around health and wellness. It's still largely about the watch. It's underpenetrated. Less than 10% of iPhone owners own a watch, and so there's a growth opportunity. But also to extend that, they have patents around making AirPods more of a health and wellness product. Your eardrum the, the, uh, tends to be a great place for picking up biomarkers, like, for example, blood pressure. That's an example of how Apple can extend yeah. their existing products. And then the last piece is around services, and I want to uh, emphasize this, is they have an opportunity, and our prediction and belief is that they will create a bundle, a 360 bundle of hardware, software. You simply pay Apple a one-month uh, one uh, dollar per, or, or one monthly fee, and you get your hardware upgraded at a certain basis. You get software services. It's just a one-stop shop. When are we going to see that? that when are we going to see? It sounds like Apple Prime. When are we going to see it? Apple Prime, well said. Uh, I, I suspect it's within the next three years. This October, we're going to see their first bundling of their content. Uh, so you're going to see them bundling Apple Music with Apple TV Plus and some of their storage, their iCloud storage. Uh, so they, it's referred to as the code name is Apple One. But uh, that is, I think, uh, going to be a leading indicator of ultimately what only Apple can do, which is bring these hardware and services together. No other company can combine this. That's what consumers want. They just want to take the, the headache of tech away from themselves and have a, a, a steady bill to pay on a monthly basis. And I think that in the next three years, we're going to see that. And I think that's going to be have a material impact in terms of how investors view Apple's revenue and earnings uh, predictability. Ultimately, I think that's going to garner a higher multiple. So uh, it's interesting, Gene, right here, I'm wondering how all these high-priced hardware and software services that Apple is so famous for will fare in a world where in the U.S. we have 10% unemployment, we have a global recession. At what point does their business feel the pain? The 
point that they, I mean, if this is sustained for multiple years, uh, they uh, will feel the pain just like everyone else. And the reason why they haven't felt the pain is obviously because even with the pain of uh, everything you just described, uh, we still need these devices. And essentially, the responsibility of tech has been shifted from uh, uh, business and organizations on the consumers. And so yeah. even though they have less dollars to spend, they're spending it with their tech. You know, Paul, I got to interrupt here and just yep. say round it up. Apple's already up to $2.1 trillion yeah. on Munster's blathering on Bloomberg's <laughs> surveillance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Gene, how about the cash here? I mean, you know, the cash just keeps, you know, piling up here. They have sixty billion dollars of free cash flow every year. Is there ever going to be a? a I, I know they buy back a lot of stock, but what do they do with the cash? Probably most of it's going to come back in the form of buying back. Just like you said, the the uh, the one X factor in terms of getting to what they call net cash neutral, which. Uh, the bottom line takeaway there is there's still this uh, wave of cash coming towards investors, whether it's through buybacks. There may be some acquisition. Apple's never done a big acquisition, but I think that they always uh, hold the right. The question is, who should they acquire ultimately? And uh, that becomes uh, more confusing. They, in hindsight, they probably should have acquired Tesla when it was $50 billion, but that's in a different place today. But that's the other uh, where they could be using the money. All right, well, let's, let, let's go there. Let's just talk Tesla here. I mean, again, another stock on a just a parabolic rise here. Give us your latest thoughts here on Tesla. The question is less about uh, the chart and where it's come from in the past year and Elon Musk and his behavior. For us, it's more also about where is the world going and ultimately where can they, what can their position be? And the world is going to electrification. It just simply is a better way to move uh, people around and also autonomy. And when you think about that first part, the electric part, Tesla has a lead. Uh, they have 80% market share in the U.S. and EVs, about 25 in Europe and about 10 in Asia. But the important part here is that that lead is a sustainable lead. And I think that that is one of the, I think, uh, areas that we're in a different place. We view this marketplace that traditional car makers are in a catch-22. I think it will be difficult for them to ultimately catch up for a number of reasons with where, where Tesla's at. But if you kind of play this forward and assume their market share does go down, but ultimately in the U.S., but let's assume that they get 25% market share of electric cars uh, globally in the next 15 years. That's 21 million cars a year. They're doing about 500,000 right now. That would be uh, about $750 billion in revenue, which implies that the current <laughs> valuation of Tesla is still trading at about 0.3 times uh, yeah. revenue. Now, Apple's trading at six and a half times revenue. And uh, I think that that is undervalued, Apple at uh, 6M. Very different companies, Apple and Tesla. But the okay. point is, is that it's still room to go. But they want me to test drive the Bentley Bentayga this weekend. And, I mean, there's <laughs> hybrid cars. I mean, it, it, Gene, I understand Tesla's out there, but am I right that they have the market to themselves? And what's it going to be like in 12 or 24 or 36 months? The, the, the challenge for traditional auto to catch up, and this is something that we uh, – closely study the challenges it's not about just introducing a car and saying uh, uh here uh we have a great brand we've been around for a long time we have a, a good style there's some substance around the features that consumers want the, one of the biggest ones is uh, range and price those that intersection between range and price and uh ultimately is that a tesla is about 30 percent less expensive than traditional auto and for traditional auto to close that 
most critical feature gap. The industry needs to sell the cars at a discount, which is a problem for a lot of their models because they tend to be leveraged businesses. And so uh, there effectively is some economies of scale that Tesla has captured. On top of that, this battery advantage that they have, we're going to hear more about it in September at their battery day, but that will likely continue to uh, lengthen. And so uh, the best, the lifeline for the auto industry, and I'm not saying that Ford and GM and Toyota are going to be gone, but I do believe one of those three are going to be a fraction of their uh, size in the next 15 years. But the one lifeline is will Tesla end up licensing some of its battery and motor technology to auto Elon Musk has recently hinted he would be open to that. I think it's a bluff. I, I don't think he has any desire to do that. Do they make money on a car, Tesla? Uh, on uh, Yes, they, uh, they do. Uh, and the reason why I even hesitate there is there's, uh, uh, there's a lot of noise around uh, right. production yeah, or yeah. building plants, but they yeah. do make money. And ultimately, they can have a business, a margin. Uh, yep. Their goal is to have a 25% well. margin. Gene, thank you so much. Uh, tell me when you find an entry point on Apple. Gene <laughs> Munster, Loop Ventures. And congratulations to Gene Munster for 16 years way out front on Apple. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.